First Peter Bible Study, Part 14, St. Peter's Cross Theology, Part 1. For lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So thus far we've talked about how St. Peter is urging Christians to see themselves as God's chosen people whether you're Jewish or Gentile or whatever your race, if you are a Christian, you belong to the true Israel. And Israel, God's Israel, the church, is undergoing a period of exile. This means our conduct as exiles should be exquisite. It should be good conduct, being good citizens and good servants, Wherever we're facing the world and the cruel masters that we have, we must still be on our best behavior. And within the church, we have the body of Christ needing to act in good harmony. So husbands and wives must be on the same page in accordance with their duties and roles. And parishioners, Christians, should get along. There should be harmonious living in the church. But to do that, as we covered last week, Christians have to foster virtues conducive to harmonious living. He puts it as unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now that's difficult, since our sinful nature lends itself to division, hostility, anger, and pride. So he spends more time on a simple requirement to follow while we seek Christian virtues. And what's that requirement? Do not get revenge, but on the contrary, bless. By refusing to get revenge and by doing good instead, one shall be blessed by our Lord. He has more to say, though, about this refusal to be hostile and to get revenge for yourself. It's not just tying it to preserving harmony in Christian congregations. More importantly, starting in 1 Peter 3.13 and going all the way to verse 22, St. Peter is giving us a value system from God that is alien to the world. In fact, to us, even, according to our flesh, it seems like it's inverting our understanding of what is good and what is bad at least in the modern age. But sinful human flesh is going to look at this passage and say, well, that's the opposite of right and wrong. <laughs> we see God's morality and we say, 
that is simply alien to my instincts. But it is extremely important for the motivation for disdaining vengeance and for enduring the difficulties of being a Christian, it's ultimately wedded to identification with Christ and service to him above all others. Verse 13 through 14a, first half of verse 14, says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You see, the world is corrupt, but it is not so corrupt that nothing makes sense. I know in the year of our Lord 2024, there is absolutely more moral twisting and horrible things going on than there used to be. The Romans of St. Peter's Day look like saints compared to the people that rule over us in this era. But hear me out. There is the first use of the law. When St. Peter says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The assumption is, well, civic and cultural authorities have this function that God gives them. Punish wickedness, reward righteousness, or good behavior. That curbs sin. St. Paul talks about this in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. So, even non-believers kind of get that. They don't want a society without laws. They don't want a society where only bad behavior is rewarded and only good behavior is punished. No, we're more odd than that. It's more muddied. Sure, our culture celebrates murder and it celebrates horrible things in the public sphere, but if you commit a murder, you're probably still going to get arrested. Oh, we might have all these movies celebrating fast cars and thieves. You get your Fast and the Furious movies and everything. Oh, sure, sure. If you go out speeding, you're still going to get a speeding ticket. Somehow, in spite of our horribly sinful era, the first use of the law, the curb against the effects of sin, is still kind of there. So it would be absurd for a non-believer to persecute someone for volunteering at the soup kitchen, like Christians often do. Why would authorities punish or jail a Christian for telling wayward youths to abandon violence and crime? I mean, that helps society, helps it to function, right? But it does happen. Christians do get punished, and they do suffer for doing Christian things, especially when Christian doctrine is preached. Sure, the world has no problem supporting you or giving that tepid attaboy for doing good deeds in the Coram Mundo orientation, facing the world. Things which materially benefit society, like a Roman Catholic charity to the poor or some Anglican orphanage or something, a society will look at that and go, okay, you can do that. But the world hates it. Absolutely hates it. When it is told that we must trust in Christ for our salvation or be damned for all eternity. And non-believers rage at being told that their favorite sins are abominable to God. And that could be somebody that likes their sexual sin, their porn addiction, somebody that's greedy and kind of taking stuff off the top at the company, doing a little bit of fraud here and there. 
Or maybe somebody has a dispositional sin like envy, covetousness, rage, lack of forgiveness. They hear Jesus say, you must forgive if you want to be forgiven, and they go, I hate that. The preaching of law and gospel spurs this rebellious part of sinful humanity that desires to have eternity played out on their own terms. I mean, almost nobody ever appreciates being told that they're not in control of their destiny or that they are poor, miserable sinners. So yes, Christians are persecuted for doing Christian things and saying Christian things. The devil makes matters worse, too, as he hates us believers. When the kingdom of God expands, the kingdom of the devil retreats. So he wars against us. He does his best as the quote-unquote ruler of this world to try to get persecution going against Christians. And then there is also the world. Organized humanity seeking godhood, I think, is the best way I can define the world, the second enemy of the Christian. It is true that Christian morality puts a damper on worldly structures. They don't like being told that they are limited. In fact, they'll say, why are you even asking what we should or should not do? Why are you saying there are things we should not do? We should have our rights. We should have our power. So there, this shouldn't even enter into the conversation, they would say, and thus they would persecute you. Also, the power structures of false religions are quite threatened when being told that their religions are false and demonic. Remember, the Roman pagan priesthood despised Christianity for a reason, and for an understandable one. Because the more Christians there are, the less pagans there are, which means less offerings, less money, uh, less meat for the priests, etc. and so forth. The pagan kingdom recedes when Christianity spreads. So they persecute Christians even if they're not doing anything wrong. So in verse 14b through 15a, St. Peter says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So to know that you are going to be persecuted might make you afraid. We're programmed to hate suffering in all of its forms. This is what I said. It makes little sense to the human flesh. We're all naturally epicurean. We avoid pain and seek pleasure. So we're troubled by hearing about persecution. We feel fear and wonder at it. We, we ask, why are they doing this? Even if rationally we understand this is why they're doing it, the world, the flesh, and the devil despise Christianity, there's also the element of fear there. So St. Peter tells us, hey, don't be fearful, don't be perplexed. This is what non-Christians do, it's how they behave, and inflicting tribulation is part of their nature as puppets of Satan. Instead of fearing them, the Christian ought to honor Christ and keep Christ in mind. He is the reason we must endure rather than running away or giving in or avenging ourselves. It is identification with Christ, cross theology here. Just as he suffered for your sake, 
you may very well suffer for him. Personally, I have suffered on account of being a Christian in many and sundrous ways. But Jesus suffered a whole lot more than I ever will. I should expect nothing better. You know, outside of the transcript, Luther does say they gave our Lord a crown of thorns. Why do we expect a crown of roses? By this identification with Christ, saying, what you went through for me, in this small way I go through for you. Not to merit salvation, but because this is right and fitting for the sake of your kingdom, we end up making a defense, a witness, to the truth of Christianity, even before non-believers. Now, it's true that St. Peter, in telling us to be ready to make a defense to anyone that asks us, that is an apologetic verse. Christians ought to be educated in the faith, and we should have answers to questions regarding that. We should be able to respond to accusations and questions and, why is your God so mean, etc. But in the context of this passage, the sense of the verse primarily pertains to martyriology, proclaiming the gospel, living it out, and suffering for it is a witness to the truth before non-believers. They look at that and they go, okay, this guy believes in something that sounds kind of like the real deal. Even our accusations here, he's still holding on to this Jesus. So verse 15b through 17, he says, Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now when we hear gentleness and respect, I know the very first thing on people's mind is, Oh, so I gotta be this little limp-wristed, weak guy. I gotta act like a battered child or some field mouse. Just staying there, staying quiet. Um, I just want to talk about Jesus, guys. It's all right. Um, don't, don't hurt me, please. But if you do, that's okay, because I love Jesus. That's not what St. Peter is saying. The literal translation from the Greek of gentleness and respect is meekness and fear. The Christian is supposed to have a quote-unquote gentleness, a meekness that suggests composure and self-control. You have strength. You are elevated. Remember his thesis statement in 1 Peter 2, God has elevated you. You are ontologically superior to a non-Christian. You are better than them. And you have more capabilities because the Holy Spirit is with you. He can empower you to do anything. This is the same God that's on your side. He was on the side of Samson. And look at the mighty battles that Samson won. But we don't use that strength for sin. And we don't use it to harm others in these uh, discussions or slanders from non-believers. Instead, we employ that strength. We employ that superiority for good. The aspect of fear, when he says uh, respect, right, gentleness and respect, it's not towards non-believers. We don't have to respect their ugly, wicked beliefs. We don't have to respect their sins or anything like that. And we don't have to be fearful toward them. 
In fact, in verse 14, St. Peter says, don't be afraid of them. But we are to fear God. Gentleness and respect, meekness toward the non-believers, and fear towards God. We are going to be confronted with hostility from the world and the devil. We shouldn't shrink back or lose control, but we must be mindful of God as the one who is watching our interactions as we stay the course, even if it means pain for ourselves. So he says the Christian must have a good conscience. We must do what is right. The injunction against revenge, remember, we're not going to have a good conscience if we say, oh, they did this to me, so now I'm going to kill them or take up arms against them. We do not mistreat nor sin against those who are persecuting us. Yes, there's matters of justice. Yes, there's matters of things that God will take care of, and he will have us do what is right there. But these people are to be put to shame. The only offending party when you are persecuted should be the persecutor, not you. They're the ones lying. They are the ones acting wickedly. They are the ones doing sinful things. It should never be the case that you join them in this little sin party. So, either they will convert and be ashamed of their former persecutions, or they are going to answer to God on Judgment Day for their actions. Now, finally, St. Peter says it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Again, as mentioned earlier, the Christian identifies with Christ. This is part of the theology of the cross. We might be called to suffer on his behalf in similar fashion to how he suffered for us. His sacrifice was entirely voluntary as an act of divine love toward us. We are called to voluntarily go through these circumstances and endure them out of love toward him. So yes, it is better to suffer for doing good. That's holy before God. He chose that for you in that instance to bring you closer to Christ. The world is going to find this perplexing. The basic instinct in humanity, again, being natural Epicureans in our sinful nature, we avoid pain and pursue pleasure. And the world is capable, in accordance with the first use of the law, they're capable of understanding when somebody pursues pleasure or avoids pain in such a way to overstep their rights. They won't condemn a man fornicating for the sake of pleasure but they'll typically punish a rapist. They can tolerate a greedy guy amassing wealth, even if it means a whole bunch of other people being poor, but they're generally going to despise and punish thieves. The world has this idea where, yes, you can sin, and sin is great, but don't go too far with it, dearie. <laughs> but Christians should abhor that thought. We should abhor the thought and hate the idea of committing sins that society tolerates and applauds. And committing crimes, punishable offenses, where even the world says, Ooh, yikes, buddy, that's wickedness. We're going to have to throw you in jail or Reno. That shouldn't even enter into your mind. Stealing, destroying, murdering, anything like that. 
we hold to a higher morality than them, and they hate us for it. But it leads to our suffering, and even that suffering can be a good thing. We're going to continue next week with this train of thought and get deeper into it, because the rest of the chapter, up to verse 22 of 1 Peter 3, gets a lot deeper from there. So hold on, even if some of this still feels like it is an inversion of our instincts, well, that's okay. He's going to answer more of these questions next week. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.